Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 227. Today is Sunday the 19th of March 2017, and this interview is with Nathan Thornburg, who's co-founder and CEO of Roads and Kingdoms, an independent media company with a refreshingly strong voice that recently brought in Anthony Bourdain as its first strategic investor. Before Roads and Kingdoms, Nathan spent almost a decade working at Time magazine as a foreign correspondent and editor. In this conversation, we discuss the genesis and path of Roads and Kingdoms, the state of journalism and media today in the context of a Trump presidency, how to drive great content, and also how to get it distributed. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Internet Show, where we discuss brand marketing with a focus on all things digital. I am Minter Dial, author of TheMindset.com, that's T-H-E-M-Y-N-D-S-E-T, where branding gets personal. You'll find the show notes on the blog for the upcoming interview. Let's cut to quick. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. So today I am at South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, 2017. And I am with someone who I, I, I think is sort of like a perennial or annual date, uh, Nathan. We are hanging together at South by. So Nathan, tell us who you are and what's your mindset. My name is Nathan Thornburg. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Roads and Kingdoms, an independent online media company. My mindset, well, listen, this is the last day of South by for me. I'm leaving tomorrow morning. I've got one more Guatemalan punk rock showcase to put on tonight. So my mindset is that feeling when all of the natural energy out of your body is sapped, but somehow adrenaline is just pushing you forward. So I have actually no idea, (laughs) but... It is going forward. We are still uh, in in locomotion. So uh, it's a very familiar feeling at uh, South by. I know you you felt that too, where you're just like, I'm done, and yet I'm not done, and excited about what's coming up, and yet I'm exhausted. So um, Roads and Kingdoms, you uh, you started that a couple of years ago, if I'm correct. That right. Roads and Kingdoms launched right here where we're talking in this living room in 2012 now. It's been around a while. This is our fifth year anniversary. Congratulations. And so this year was a little bit of a special year as far as I'm concerned. You you did some pretty special. Tell us what you did at Southway. Uh, well, this year we had a uh, the opportunity to partner up with CNN, uh, which is one of uh, our, our biggest projects that we're working on now is building essentially an entirely new media property with CNN based around the Parts Unknown show, uh, which is hosted by uh, my business partner, Anthony Bourdain. So Bourdain is the only uh, investor in Roads and Kingdoms and um, a big part of our professional uh, lives. And, and we have the opportunity to build a project that basically creates media around all of his destinations from his show. It's for us, it's just like cake, eating cake every day because we get to hire the best photographers and journalists that we know, and they get to do really fun stories from around the world that, you know, have our mix, which is like food to war and everything in between. Um, the real fun thing, though, is when you get our ideas for what we'd like to see in a party and then CNN's budgets and and just press go. So 
with the Pata Negra to boot. Goodness. Yeah, we, you know, obviously we wanted to do this in Spain. We uh, were in a uh, Spain theme. We just came back from Barcelona shooting a uh, digital video series with uh, Land Rover with Anthony Bourdain. So the Spain theme was a nice fit. It's part of the CNN project. Um, but, you know, Spain theme, when Roads and Kingdoms would do it, would mean, you know, something very different than when CNN would do it. So we said, we want ham. And they said, okay, two Pata Negra hams, like wholesale $1,200 each. So we want music. And I said, well, an old buddy of mine's got a great little, like, nightclub rock band in Madrid. And they're like, fantastic. Authentic. Yeah, we'll fly him out here for the night. So how did you get Anthony Bourdain involved? How did that, uh, how did that swing? It's funny, you know, both my partner, my co-founder, Matt Goulding, who's a food writer, and I was a, a Time Magazine journalist, more of a foreign correspondent, we both had met Tony at different versions in our old jobs. So he had, like, palled around with Tony in Catalonia and, you know, been partying with him. I interviewed him for the 10 questions section of Time when I was editing that section. Mm-hmm. I always really liked the guy just from vibe, you know. Karma. Yeah, just a real, like... You know, he's incredibly quick uh, thinker and speaker, but also has a really good, uh, you know, moral sensibility about him and is delightfully profane. Uh, you know, there's there's a lot to like about that guy, but we're not alone in that. When we launched in 2012 here, actually, he was at South By and uh, we shot him a note. Um, and we said, hey, you should come by my brother's house. Uh, you know, we're having a little launch party for this thing we want to do and we think you'll be interested and he wrote back immediately and said no and we were so psyched we're like oh man anthony He's bourdain not- got back to us yeah it's like we're reading it like oh cool look at that he said yeah he said no and we were like legitimately pumped because you know even then i know he's gotten much much you know bigger in terms of like you know recognition and exposure since then but even then he's a giant uh, and particularly for my partner, Matt, who was a cook and really came up in that world. Bourdain is, uh, you know, he's a role model. He's a, he's, he's, it's, this is how you live. This is how you should live. And, and to, uh, to even get a no from your guru, your Yoda is, uh, very exciting. So, um, needless to say, when we were sleeping on a boat in Copenhagen, working on a few different stories about Danish cuisine back in, you know, I think it was early 2013 and we woke up and our Twitter account had gone loco and turns out that Tony had tweeted out some nice thing about what Matt and I were doing with Rhodes Kingdoms. Um, and that, you know, that was a even giddier feeling than, you know, sure. just hearing, no, I'm not I coming to your party. <laughs> yeah. So Rhodes and Kingdoms, I mean, yeah. obviously it's a, there's a lot of travel in, in its DNA, at least in the title. Tell us what you're trying to do with Roads and Kingdoms. I mean, obviously, you've you got a new form of media. The different topics you're choosing to push, what, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, you know, the short answer is that we're not trying to do anything, which, is, which explains, I think, the, the, the kind of course that we've taken. We have our own personal interests. And, you know, one of the things that Matt and I decided when we left corporate media was we were not going to betray those for a minute if we could help it, which means, you know, I, you know, I'm intensely interested in the world of food, but really mostly as it relates to like geopolitics and like, how does a sauce called the Jika explain the Abkhaz and the Georgians and why they fucking hate each other? You know, things like that. Matt 
has this incredible way of traveling and opening up a, a new country and culture through writing about food. And, you know, the first time we sat down and talked about Roads and Kingdoms, we were like, we want to combine those things. And it's kind of what we've done. Now, you know, the there's a price to pay for that in digital media, but there's also advantages. So, you know, we don't have scale, which is like the the the, the, the real currency of digital media over the past five years. Right. We, in terms of getting distribution, you mean? Well, just in terms of, you know, the the core root business model of digital media is still display advertising. Like that's, you know, advertisers can't quit that. Uh, it still makes the whole thing run and it's still impressions. And until, you know, until some kind of engagement metrics really start to bounce up, the fact that people read you know, every last drop of our 4,000 word, you know, uh, stories about a, you know, a Chinese butcher working in Budapest, um, that, that counts exactly the same as the 5,000 hot take rewrites, Mm -hmm. you know, or, you know, write-ups of how Stephen Colbert destroyed Trump, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's the commodity you're talking about, uh, online. And, we don't scrape content. We don't do hot takes or rewrites. We everything we do is original reporting and 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 writing. And that's a really stupid idea in digital media. <laughs> like, let's be honest. Like, it's a terrible business idea. But it's also true that everything that's good that has happened to Roads and Kingdoms has happened because we're kind of this odd duck. You know, we we make this like handcrafted thing in a in a in a sea of pig swill like this is what digital media is there's so much bad content and we've been stubborn in doing kind of old school stuff so one of the things that obviously is penalizing is not to have maybe a specific focus it's more like a mantra or a manifesto than a single keyword in seo it was that i mean that's my observation is that true I think that's true. I, you know, and one of the things that we really enjoy about being around Bourdain, though, is that he he shows a path. And listen, like I don't have that guy's jawline. Like I'm not I'm not as tall as he is. He's he's got a lot of natural advantages in the in the world that that we don't share. So I don't want to I don't want to make like an apples to apples comparison. But when I look at him, I see a man who has gotten away with being his own somewhat bizarre, diverse, eclectic set of interests, which range from food to politics to uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is a, a step too far for me. But, you know, like, that's his identity. And he has a massive following, you know, on social and whatever, on, on television. Like, you know, people don't look at him and just, they don't think, who is this guy? He's so complicated. Like, right. he's always thinking about all this weird shit. And he's a super, like, film nerd and into jujitsu and food, you know, I, I, I think for me, that's, I, I find that a compelling argument to just represent our diverse set of interests. And, and as we have had the good fortune to grow and, and hire some folks, uh, uh, in Brooklyn and in the office, you know, they've, they've kind of been that combination too. We've got some foreign policy wonks and we've got some chefs and, and, you know, we'll continue to represent their interests and ours um, as 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 we move forward. Yeah. So, in in terms of a number of people working for you, tell us how many you have. Uh, right now, we're like full full time is seven. I mean, we're not talking about a big team. Uh, we work with full full people, but not necessarily a big team. <laughs> they are full people. Uh, no, they are, uh, and you know, at that size too, every hire is 
super important. And every and they imprint the company. I mean, we we hired uh, this this uh, Parisian uh, photo editor who's who had, I guess is bicultural. She grew up in the states part of the time, and she was our first hire named Pauline Eiferman. And she um, she changed she changed the entire trajectory. You know, Matt and I had our certain interests, but she was so so gifted and fluent in the world of photography and particularly like the more interesting world of photojournalism that was coming up under the generation of kind of the old white, you know, grand masters of photojournalism. She was finding, you know, photographers who were women who were, you know, coming from the Arab world, the Southeast Asians, and she managed to elevate them and their ideas and their life stories and their work on Roads and Kingdoms. And it became a different publication. And, you know, that could have gone horribly wrong if she was like really into botany or horticulture or something that just <laughs> wouldn't have fit. But like, like she made us a legitimate photojournalistic um, outlet, and and that's the fun part about the high stakes of of, of bringing people on to a, a very small team. So one of the things that I observe is looking at these big companies is that so many of them are ROI focused, uh, rationally trained business school types. And yet I think that there's an enormous need for them to inject more sort of sociologist, anthropologist, left brain, more fluid, more humane types of people, which is what I'm feeling you guys represent. How do you align with brands? I, I mean, do you go through like some spot check or whether they have that humanity to them or is that what you're bringing to them? That's a good question. I mean, you know, the, the backdrop on our relationship with brands is uh, comes from the fact that digital advertising is such a terrible thing to do to readers and it's a terrible thing to do to your own business uh it just warps the content so we really see brands and have seen them uh since the beginning the right brands as as partners who can help us bring you know our own uh our own stories to life and then also for themselves to get that kind of what you're talking about this 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 confidence of voice that we're able to have because we know exactly who we are mm-hmm. um, there and we know exactly, you know, kind of where we, where we live in the, in the world of content. I think that's hard to do if you're a large company mm-hmm. and you're trying to workshop a voice together. Yes. You're bringing a level of authenticity, a level of rawness and humanity, which in the end of the day is what we're all looking for as customers. Yeah. And I, I think it, it, you know, it brings up challenges for sure because you've got to pick, not only do you have to pick the right companies to kind of work with and make sure that if we put this piece of content in front of our audience that they wouldn't, you know, this wouldn't be a, a, an outrage right. to them on some level. Yeah. Uh, Ethical I, question. Yeah, I mean, I, the ethics I'm less worried about because we can always signal and sign posts that this is sponsored content, this is. And I just want it to be a good experience. for. And advertising can be that. I mean, there's incredible sponsored content, incredible brand content mm-hmm. that would fit in perfectly and does fit in perfectly with what we do as a as a company and our audience what they want however you know it's it does have to be the right company and 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 we have you know we have entire categories that are very difficult for us to work with convincingly um, and food is like a major one which is mm-hmm. you know kind of ironic right we right. were with one of the most famous kind of food personalities in the world he's our our partner and we you know care deeply about this and write about it deeply and convincingly but the truth of the food industry in the United States at least is Disaster. I mean the the mm-hmm. 
the companies that are doing great work have no budget mm -hmm. and the companies that have budgets are, you know, one of three different conglomerates that, you know, we really don't, that's not who we are. That doesn't represent us. So, you know, so we really haven't engaged in a brand context with food at all. We're much more comfortable in automotive. We're just launched this big project with Land Rover, which is fantastic. I mean, the, the video itself is, is it's, it's not about like sort of handling on the road. It's about eating and life and love and Catalonia and, and, you know, how, how to, how to, be a, a, a curious and uh, voracious person in this world. Um, and that's perfect for Land Rover. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to, it's not like we're, you know, diminishing our audience by, by saying, listen, like this brand is aligned with us on this. Um, and they, they get to have stories that are, are, I think, kind of compelling and touching. And, and it doesn't hurt that Anthony Bourdain is on them, you know, so. Sure. I'm just thinking about how you approach brands because if you let's say Land Rover, of course, it's a it's by nature a little rough and ready out, you know, go out for the the safari. Uh, Louis Vuitton uh, has traveled up and down their DNA, and you know, obviously with the suitcases. But even beyond that, it's all about the voyage. So there's certain brands I can see a, a more obvious connection. But for the rest, what you're providing is definitely out of left field and it, how do you connect with them because i mean you and i are getting i mean I, i'm listening and i understand it but if i'm a sort of a traditional rei business school roi sorry rei rei is a good one roi type business minded what's my what's my what's my return on goddamn investment you're going to have trouble presenting what you do how do you how do you make that synergy happen uh we do that by having very um getting to the the right conversation very quickly because it's just not going to work like if you're a right. you know if you're a brand that doesn't have the the right mindset if i can borrow that uh word yeah great term but if i mean it, you and you can tell i mean and how do you tell because you ask them and you say i mean I, i'm very upfront for example like we have a small audience is that gonna like is your boss gonna be pissed You know, I, I think we're somewhere around 300 to 400,000 impressions uh, a month, which is, you know, most people are pretty coy about that data. Right. I really don't give a fuck. I mean, for us, that's, of course, who we are. Like, we, you know, we're scrappy, bootstrapped. Mm -hmm. We have big, famous partners. But the work we do, like, we appeal very deeply to not a broad section. Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable with that. And I also, I think that's a good way of smoking out Uh, you know, out of the underbrush, the people who might not, you know, who are like, wait a second, like, is this a big enough company? And, mm -hmm. and right. I mean, trust me, I'm sure we leave tons of business that I could have bullshitted my way closer right. to on the table. And the other thing that's also important, I think a key for us to maintain our, our editorial kind of concentration and focus is to find really good agencies to partner with and good clients. In this case, we're With Land Rover, we're partnering with CNN's agency where they handle client relations mm -hmm. and we, we provide the creative brief. We mm -hmm. go and shoot. We, we have the production team. We, you know, we provide the ideas, the talents, the location, whatever. But like, we don't have to answer those questions about like, okay, well, what is your return and, and so on. So, um, there are some brands that we do work directly with and just because, you know, because they're, they're in a very interesting, point where they can they can handle like a, a kind of like a little bit of a, a a creative discussion that that isn't more metric where tiger beer is a great example so oh. tiger is obviously a huge 
beer. It's a Heineken brand. Uh, it's it's the biggest beer in in Asia. They are moving into the states and making a push and and doing a lot of super interesting projects and working directly with creatives to do that. So for us, with us, they're they're doing a, a podcast that they're sponsoring. That's an independent editorial. Uh, creation that we're doing. We've got Bourdain and a lot of the, our kind of most uh, most loved people from our universe. But you know, it takes a very special brand to have the marketing director. You know, give the artistic license. Yeah, and and they they've been awesome. Like you know, to have the marketing director fly in from Singapore and hang out on our couch in Brooklyn at our office and just like talk about like culture and you know where the universe is going and how Asia is kind of making a, 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 a an imprint on on American culture in these all these fascinating ways like. Those are conversations that I, I recognize as being deeply unusual, especially for a large organization. Um, so I, I celebrate them, uh, but I also don't, I, I'm not under any delusion that that's how it usually goes, you know. Well, it sounds like you're following, a, a, let's say, an old precept, which is a publisher and editor shall not talk. There's a, a need for the sales to be done on one side and then let the editors, let the creative go on the other side. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, I came up at Time Magazine, right? So I worked there for a decade, and, and the the firewall was thicker nowhere else. I, I, you know, you work there long enough, you got to sense, like, okay, I think there's a reason why we're having an all-hands meeting to figure out what the next big thing in cancer is. Perhaps we've closed a deal with a pharma company and need to create a special issue, you know. But these no, cancer is important, really. <laughs> cancer is incredibly important, and yet suspiciously popular as a uh, repeat special issue topic uh, yeah. Yeah. over there. And I, I think you know, but but those things were always whispered. And and to be honest, I had you know very little personal relationship with anybody on the business side. So that's a natural position for me to come from. I don't, I also am not, you know, incredibly paranoid about um, the, the high-minded divide between editorial and revenue um, because at the end of the day, it's really about being transparent with your reader mm. and they, they will accept these things. I mean, the, uh, it, it gets really sticky when you're, you know, trying to cover foreign events in a in a news capacity and yet you're constantly running special issues sponsored by Azerbaijan or something mm-hmm. um and we have our own red lines like to bring up Azerbaijan like I I would unless the government there changes I'm not going to work with their tourism department like mm-hmm. you know we know people in jail there you know journalists like mm-hmm. so we get to decide like yeah, that would be too far, and I'm not going to do that. But at the same time, when you're talking about a, you know, a, I would say a less political brand environment, just make sure it's not terrible content. Make sure mm-hmm. it's great, and your readers will enjoy it if you're going to put it in front of them. Uh, and then just make it clear where it's coming from. All right. So I want to get to the the notion of readers because, as you on your website, you talk about the number of people that get to view the content because you have obviously a relationship with the distribution you have you have a platform you have a readership so on the one hand you're creating on the other hand you're actually distributing to your audience how do you manage that because i can just you know if you got a creative thing you want to do something beautiful in the agency business it's always you know how many can can you win lions but nah, it doesn't really matter how many people it turned on to buy more soup or whatever yeah, I mean, again, I think it's a matter of 
working with the the right people. I mean, to be honest, I don't think Tiger Beer is expecting, you know, walk-in sales at some of their, you know, accounts in the Lower East Side to go through the roof once this podcast drops. They do know that, you know, aligning with voices that are strong and distinct, you know, especially in that kind of, in that world of, 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 of food that's at, at this kind of much more, I guess I, high end sounds like luxury, but you know, we're, we appeal to real, uh, you know, food obsessives also in food and drink. And, and, you know, I think they, they understand that from a, a broader kind of, um, identity sense, but again, that's unusual, right? And, and the problem with digital media sometimes is it floats the, the idea that you might drive, you know, click through traffic mm-hmm. to a product that could be bought. And I think editorial is a really challenging way to do that. You know, it's very hard for us to, you know, it's not like we do a lot of, you know, shop this look that our editor is wearing in this uh, thing. You know, five reasons to go to Barcelona. (laughs) Actually, we do listicles. Uh, We do have 23 things to do uh, or to know before you go, before you go to Barcelona. But those listicles are like, I mean, listen, those listicles are. Uh, very intense and they get like really deep into like, you know, the Catalan chauvinism and, and, you know, and like the anarchist, you know, underbelly. Yeah. And, and that would, that is not what, you know, tourism Barcelona is necessarily, it is, it's one of the most read things we've ever done. And it's an incredibly useful guide for visitors, but you understand that brands and especially destination marketing, you know, uh, groups like, the 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 fear level is just enormous with you know with the most of them and then we're looking for the ones that are out there and like willing to uh you know to be a, a a little more adventurous and 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 real and frankly listen i we've been doing journalism content you know i've been doing it for a very long time now i believe you know in my heart of hearts that safety and and this kind of caution is is absolutely fatal to that relationship with any kind of audience and they can sniff it from a mile away and that's why brands have a hard time communicating like and and it and it sounds good in the boardroom i'm sure it does and it sure as hell sounds a lot better than like all of the risky things that they might have to justify uh, up the chain but at the end of the day people are incredibly smart consumers of content and they will sniff your bullshit from a long way away and you know i'm not saying that we have all of these things figured out but i i do know that when i have a choice to make between something that's a lot safer or that's kind of you know more authentic and and just more real and true to us like you know the the right decision is it doesn't always feel easier to do but it's the correct one is to just go with Go with what you think and what you feel and people will come with you mm. or react against you or hate you or love right. you. But at they least react. there's something. Yeah. yeah. That's what we want. Um, so speaking of reactions, if you will, what uh, is your viewpoint on social media as part of your strategy? Uh, I think it's great. I mean, listen, I, I'm like, we are no Luddites. And it's, it's funny, too, because uh, uh, we, our partner, Bourdain, is... I think he turned 60 this year. He's not like a Snapchat child, mm-hmm. but the guy and, and of, you know, he loves nothing more on a plane than to read like a dog eared Orwell or something, you know, or Graham green. Like he's a, he's got some very, uh, 
uh, old school interests and, and, and so on. But he's also a ridiculous user of Instagram. Mm. And, you know, I could tell when I was shooting with him in Barcelona recently, like that, that he was really amped to be where he was with, he was with the people he was with, uh, you know, because in the middle of the film shoot, he's like whipping out his phone and doing an Instagram story about the angulas that we're cooking on, you know, on the beach near Rosas. And we're just like, you know, it's really, it's, it's pretty funny that he leads the way almost for us. And as a, right. as a funny aside, you know, on a shoot like that where it's a big brand shoot and we've announced it now so I can talk about it, but it was under wraps and, you know, right. between CNN and Land Rover. Right. On a big shoot like that, especially and, and with a, a, a celebrity like Bourdain who would attract a crowd, you know, the rule on the set that, you know, that you put down is like, keep your phones in your pocket. We're not going to tweet this. It's not going to go on Instagram. You know, if, if you want to take a picture you know, for your own keepsake, like keep it until we announce this project and then you can, you know, do your behind the scenes thing. And then Tony, of course, like screws it all up because as soon <laughs> as he gets fired up, he's like taking his phone out and Instagramming and he's like, good morning, Catalonia. And we're just like, all right, I guess, uh, I guess you can tweet this out. Like, right. Right, well, yeah, this is, boss, yeah, right? this is happening. Well, but I mean, at the end of the day, the, the beauty of, of being small and, and having your voice uh, and the social is that you have the immediacy. You don't have to go through five layers of approvals to get stuff out. And that's sort of what helps too. Yeah, we, you know, and, and to CNN's credit, they really, you know, we've been going over the social strategy now that we're going to be launching with uh, this site. And, and they, I think they have a, a, a very fine sense of that as well. It's just like, there's a corporate communications kind of role of social media. But really, if you want to, you know, if you want to interact with the people that you interact with, and we're launching, you know, mid or late April, and, and we'll launch and stand up all of our um, you know, all of our social channels, but the way that we're going to do it and come, come talk at us when we get, when we get going, because the whole idea is that, you know, behind this explore parts unknown is that this is a Bourdain super fan, um, who has, happens to have special access to him. Right. And that's essentially what we are. I mean, we're huge fans, just like the 5 million people who follow him on Twitter, but we also get to hang out with him and we want to bring people into that. And you can't do it just by raining content down on the heads of social media users. You have to like come in and just like say, Hey, like, what do you want to know about this last episode that dropped? Like, I'll tell you some stories that are not in there, right. you know, so that we can give them something to get excited about and just feel that they're part of the game. And just have a just have a conversation. I mean, it feels it's so hard to do because you're like, I'm creating, you know, right. content that's going to get us in trouble mm -hmm. if it goes wrong or whatever. But, you know, I, I think um, as much as you can get to that, just like, you know, an actual conversation. And and even if it's a couple of us who are kind of tag teaming on these different accounts, still knowing like who we represent, like who we are and how we talk to uh, to the people who are reading us. So, Nathan, one last question, uh, which is about new tech we're at South by. We probably, I suppose, you've attended a few sessions. There's a lot of sessions on journalism, new media, the future of journalism. What are the technologies that turn you on? Are, are, are there any in your mix as you're driving the media and the creation you're doing that really turn you on? I mean, I don't want to name any, but I'll let you roll. 
I would like to give a shout out to a very uh, uh, ancient human technology, which is outrage. <laughs> <laughs> outrage is saving the media right now. You want to have a panel about like why New York Times and Washington Post are killing it and why, you know, even in our small corner, why our readership is up because we uh, we are identifying in a very real way with our users who are so pissed about like the kind of world that seems to be trying to build itself. And, you know, so I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of what's happening right now as, you know, as, as grim as the storm clouds are over Europe, over the United States, um, it has put us in a position. And I, I speak of us as all media of just having to defend what we do and why we do it. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful test case. Um, now, in terms of a more South by, you know, I mean, Christ, you can't go a half block here without somebody with those Snapchat glasses. And, uh, you know, certainly tech is is uh, something that they love to flaunt. Um, and, you know, every party, I think one of the new things this year is every party's got to have some kind of like VR goggle station, you know, so they can show your VR stuff. I try to not, I mean, listen, like we we're very interested in that technology as as a potential I try to not worry or be distracted almost even by new technologies because what we find and, and VR is bumping into, you know, they're bumping into this as a, as a medium. But what you find is if you can't find a way to tell good stories and a good story is like, mm -hmm. it is like a Neanderthal sitting around the campfire type of good story. It's that is a, it is the original technology and like, if you can't find a way to get that done with your fancy gadget, then, you know, then it's not, go, go back to pen and paper, you know, I mean, really? So it's, it's, I, I mean, whatever, I'm not sitting here waiting for, you know, the internet to recede so that we can all just like, you know, uh, tell great food stories on stone tablets again. I just think that, you know, there comes a moment when, uh, every technology has got to prove its weight, uh, it's worth in, in a storytelling context and VR is hard, man. Cause you know, if you want to bring, you know, if you want to bring narration into something, if you want to do more than just be a fly on the wall, uh, then you have a lot of, a lot of different challenges to contend with. Like, where's that voice coming from? Who is this person? Like, how do we, you know, how do we contextualize that? Uh, but um, thanks to the aforementioned outrage, the New York mm -hmm. Times has great resources. They're doing amazing work. We've got really good friends in the VR department who are just, you know, they're trying to figure this shit out. And I don't think we, anybody knows how, you know, how it's going to go and, and what the path forward is. But I take comfort in knowing that the backbone of everything that we do, that brands do, that technology, you know, content companies have to do has to be a good story. Well, being a storyteller, I love that ending. Nathan, so what's the best way for someone to follow you, connect with you, uh, and find out what's going on? Well, I do not have the Snapchat glasses, so don't look for me there. <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, yeah, Rhodes, Rhodes Kingdoms uh, is our uh, abbreviated Twitter handle. I'm at Thornburg with, uh, with an H at the end. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we're... Uh, we're really excited about this explorepartsunknown.com, which is, uh, check that out at the end of the April, of April. It's, it's, uh, it's just drop dead gorgeous and smart. So I would hope to see you there. Great. Thanks for coming on the show. Put all that in the show notes and, uh, carry on. All right. Thank you, Mentor. Good to see you on our once a year date. That's it. <laughs> Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue Show. 
You'll find the show notes on themindset.com, that's mindset with a Y, where you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter at forward slash subscribe. If you like the show, please do rate it in iTunes. That really makes my day. Happy trails and enjoy Josh Sachs's Painted Fingers. Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way to rid me of the gray. This is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. 
We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today.